Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. It is time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. And the problem we've had is, in, in, in some classrooms, only the, the extreme left side has been presented. And so these present a, an alternative I want us to be able to work together, and, and, and uh, we have work to do here uh, for, for not just us, but for all of Arizonans. And that's what we're going to do. And tomorrow, we'll come back and still do what we've been doing. We are not where we need to be. Ten years later, as evidenced by the myriad of headlines about the lack of funding in our public school system, we continue to come up short. Something needs to change. The governor's proposal to increase Proposition 123 in its distributions to a whopping 8.9% is dangerous and it's unsustainable. People are moving here and voting here with their feet. However, we haven't had enough homes uh, built to support this growth. And while we've had great policies at the state level, on the local level, we have seen a rash and a ton of new regulations. And joining me to talk about the new chair of the Arizona Republican Party, the resignation of an embattled state lawmaker and more, are Chip Scatari of SNC Communications. Good morning, Chip. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. And former State House Minority Leader Reginald Bolding. Reginald, good morning to you. Good morning. So let's start with a lot of comings and goings at the state legislature this week. Let's start with one of the goings. Uh, Reginald, I'll start with you. Um, Representative Lisa Sun resigned seemingly very shortly before the House was set to kick her out. Um, was, was it surprising? to you, given how how she defended herself in the House Ethics Committee? Were, were you surprised at all that she decided to resign? I wasn't surprised at all. I, I don't think anyone was surprised. Um, uh, and I think that one of the things that, you know, the caucus members would say, you know, quietly is that people, you know, really wanted her wanted her out. I mean, you know, ever since she, you know, was elected to office, I know that there's there's been some, you know, there's always been some type of issues that, you know, that's that's plagued itself within the caucus or its leadership, and um, it's it's unfortunate. Um, you know, obviously her be- behavior was unfortunate, and I can tell you, Democrats, had she not resigned, Democrats would have led the the charge to expel her. They were a hundred percent on board, ready to go, and ready to get her out the caucus. Chip, the, the Ethics Committee released a report that was not terribly favorable to her, uh, found that she committed a pattern of disorderly behavior in violation of House rules, abused her official title and position. And some of the testimony that came out, I mean, she th- allegedly threatened to kill a lobbyist. I mean, this is that's not good stuff. Yeah, she threatened to throw someone off a balcony, which is never good. Yeah. Um, so she's definitely needed of anger management or, you know, serious professional help and um, as we were talking before the show, this has been a pattern with her, this disruptive behavior, this belligerence. Um, and then there's no place for that at the Capitol, state Capitol or in your house or in any place of business. So I give credit to the Democrats, the Arizona House Democrats for working together. And, yeah, it seemed like a bipartisan push to get her out of the Capitol. So it's good for that. The um, Arizona Dems seem like they have to hit the transfer portal like they're a sports <laughs> team, you know, because they lost, you know, Representative Athena Solomon, um, Jennifer Longden, Amish Shaw. So they have quite a few vacancies to fill. 
Um, I do think Jevin Hodge was a good appointment to fill um, Representative Solomon's uh, spot because I think he could be a, a rising star in the Dem party. And I know I'd love to get Reginald's take on this, but maybe there's some you know uh, hope for new blood and new voices at the Capitol on the Dem side. Yeah, I mean, how much of it, Reginald? When you, I mean, we talk about some of these Democrats. Obviously, Representative Son is a different story, but the other three all basically said in some variation the the grass is greener somewhere else, right? Like this isn't enjoyable. It's deadlocked. It's not fun. We can be more productive outside the Capitol. That seems like it's kind of a problem. No, I mean, it is a problem. When you look at, you know, uh, Representative Shaw, Longden and Salmon, you know, they all, you know, were um, effective and what they did with the constituent basis that they represented, you know. Um, and, And I think that when they're saying that, hey, the capital is in gridlock, we can we feel like we can actually do a better job of affecting change in Arizona from outside of the capital. It is a, something that we need to, you know, look back at and say, how can we change the dynamics of what's happening at the legislature? Um, but with that said, you know, when you're trying to impact, you know, wide scale statewide policy changes, the legislature is a place that you want to be. And I, I'm hopeful that there's going to be some. Uh, you know, great folks who will be able to fill the shoes of those folks. And I think Jevin Hodge absolutely is a, is a rising star in the Democratic Party. And I and I and I'm just really glad that he, he's he's he was, you know, got the seat. I, I think this calls for again, I've said this on the show many times, but we need to raise the salary for state lawmakers. It's still twenty four thousand dollars, yeah. which is tough to live on. You know, I think, a you know, a livable wage of 50 to 60,000. You'd get a different, uh, maybe uh, more w- widespread, you know, good talent to go to work down there. But doing it for $24,000 a year when you have basically January to June where you're down there completely, it's tough to run a business. It's tough to work for mm-hmm. you know, an employer. Um, I think it's high time that there should be a bipartisan push to get something on the statewide ballot to give these folks, you know, whether left, right or center, a, a big pay raise. Reginald, Katie Hobbs, Governor Hobbs, has made – made it pretty clear that it is one of her goals to flip one or both of the legislative chambers. Democrats have been talking about this for a very long time. I wonder, though, if the a number of resignations now, is that an indication that maybe Democrats aren't so optimistic of that happening after this year's election? No, I wouldn't put a, a correlation between, you know, the resignations and, and the efforts to flip the chamber. I, I think every uh, resignation that you saw, it was for a good reason. You know, when we talk about Rep. Salmon, you know, she has been leading, you know, repro- reproductive, you know, justice rights. Um, you know, I mean, Shaw, he feels like he has a really good chance in Congress, which, mm-hmm. I, which I think he does, uh, you know, to win that race um, in, in uh, CD1. And then also uh, Rep. Longden, like she's been a strong advocate, you know, when it comes to protecting, you know, community health clinics and families. So I, I think there's different cases there. But with that said, that if they, if there's going to be strong policy changes that the governor wants to implement. There is no she has no way to do that outside of flipping, you know, one or both of these chambers, because we've seen the gridlock that took that took place last year. And and we're starting to see that again this year. Chip, speaking of comings and goings, the state Republican Party had a bit of that over the last week or so with Jeff DeWitt last week resigning after, of course, the uh, leaked audio recording from Kerry Lake of a conversation that they'd had some months before. On Saturday, the party met and uh, voted for Gina Swoboda to be the new chair of the party. Um, What's your impression of, of her as a leader? And I guess what challenges do you think she will have to deal with coming in and taking over this new position? Well, first, it was kind of sad to me as someone who covered politics in Arizona for a long time. Those Saturday meetings used to be somewhat fun where you could, you know, talk with people, schmooze a little bit, hear what's going on. You know, they blocked the media from coming. It was very divisive. It was a lot of booing. Um, so I think that's where the, the Arizona Republican Party at that level has gone, which is very sad. 
Um, and I think for those not fluent in political speak, when you see the words, I'm doing air quotes, Trump endorsed, that means that a person, whether it's Gina Swoboda or whoever, is willing to embrace the big lie, willing to say that Donald Trump won an election he didn't. You know, Joe Biden won fair and square. Um, so I think whenever you see those two words, Trump endorsed, you have to put in your mind, you know, whether you're you know, a Republican or Democrat, that that means you're willing to embrace the big lie for Donald Trump. And I think uh, Ms. Swoboda has, you know, a huge uphill climb, not only with uh, finances, but, you know, I, I saw her on the Steve Bannon podcast talking about how they're going to, you know, find election irregularities. And, you know, she started a nonprofit called Veteran, uh, Voter Reference Foundation, which analyzes state voter rolls to find falsely, you know, false information. Mm-hmm. It's been debunked. Um, so I think it's just going to be more of the same with uh, her leadership. It's going to be about, you know, election integrity, trying to overturn the elections, stopping different uh, electoral procedures. Um, but that's the way the party's going and that's what they wanted. And, um, you know, we'll see how this plays out in a ele- big, crucial election year for Arizona and America. How much do you think it matters, sort of the state of, of really either party, given super PACs and given the ability of, you know, we saw two years ago of donors to give money, for example, to a county Republican Party to get, you know, ads on the air and get stuff they want to done, sort of bypassing the state party. Does it matter, the sort of the state of a, of a state's political party? You know, it used to matter a whole lot more. Now for like, you know, presidential race, senator race, U.S. Senate race, a governor's race, it doesn't matter. What it does matter is, you know, raising money and also for uh, ledged candidates, for getting out the vote for those. Like so down we, ballot type Yeah, when votes, we were yeah. talking about down ballot, if, you know, the Dems can either turn over the state house or flip the state house and flip the state Senate, that's where it matters. Um, but for Joe or Jane Sixpack on the street, they don't really know who the Arizona Republican or Dem uh, Arizona Republican or Dem Party chair is, and nor do they care. So it's it's you know they'll find other ways. Both political parties will find other ways around that to raise money and to funnel uh, cash to their to candidates. Yeah, Rachel, what do you what do you think? I mean, does it really matter? Like for Democrats who are trying to win races, like Republicans are, like does it matter if the other party is sort of in a state of flux? Well, you know what? When when Democrats saw that Gina Sabota was elected chair, you know, I, we quietly stood back and just clapped our hands and said, "Look, uh, this is a continuance of what we've seen out of the the state GOP for the last several cycles." You know, um, and what we're seeing is that the more extreme that you're having a Republican Party, the more extreme candidates that are going to win these primaries, and which makes most of these races that are in competitive districts. Um, or districts that lean right, all winnable for Democrats. So, you know, I, I remember, I, uh, you know, many moons ago, uh, sitting sitting at, at the state <laughs> legislature, uh, testifying was Gina Sabota on, you know, election irregularities. And, you know, now she's also, I think it's important to note, she also works for the Senate um, uh, Republicans, um, you know, covering, you know, all of their election the elections policies. Committee, right? yeah, the elections committee, right? Elections committee. Um, this is, uh, you know, Democrats know that, you know, by having someone really extreme is going to make it more difficult for institutional Republican donors to put their money into parties. I I would say this. I do think parties matter when it comes to uh, coordination across, um, you know, several candidates, Mm. you know, Mm. local, state, federal. But ultimately, as you mentioned, no one on the street really knows who they're the chair of either party is. But once again, this shows that Donald Trump is not only running his campaign, but pretty much Every swing state uh, infrastructure, which is a big deal um, back in you know, 10, 15 years ago, five years ago, um, whether the president was a Republican or Democrat, they weren't getting involved at this level to make sure they had their endorsed people in, in charge. And it says, I think, a, 
um, you know, sends a message to moderate Republicans like myself. I guess I'm a raging rhino now. I don't know what to consider myself. <laughs> that basically this isn't what you know. We're not here for you. And that, and if you listen to Gina Swoboda talk. It was all about election integrity, election irregularities, nothing about K-12 schools, which I care about for my kids, nothing about health care, nothing about affordable housing, nothing about private sector for a small business owner. It was all about election irregularities. Well, and interestingly, all of the candidates, I mean, Jeff DeWitt worked for Trump, both on his campaign and in his administration. The other candidates were all supporters of former President Trump. So it's not like you had sort of the Trump wing Mm -hmm. and another wing of the party going for the chairmanship. It was all sort of varying degrees of support for the former president. Yeah. And I don't know Jeff DeWitt well. I've met him a couple of times on, you know, in TV studios. Seems like a pretty nice guy. He seemed like maybe the one person in the state Republican apparatus of Arizona that could thread the needle between being a MAGA guy also reaching out to, you know, common centrist Republicans. Hmm. He kind of had that um, everyman quality to him. And uh, so uh, I think Gina Swoboda, I don't think she has that same type of personality or persona. Um, so I believe it was a big loss for that re- Arizona Republicans to lose Jeff DeWitt at that, at that chair as chair. Reginald, let me start with you on a superintendent of public construction, Tom Horn, striking a deal with uh, an outlet called Prager U, which is uh, founded by Dennis Prager, a conservative talk show host, basically to post on the state education department's website materials, curriculum materials that this PragerU has put together. Horn is quick to say that schools don't have to use it. It's just an option. But he's also basically saying that essentially schools, students are basically taught a left-wing ideology, and this is an alternative to that. Yeah, so uh, Superintendent Horn, he has essentially legitimized and, you know, sanctioned a far-right curriculum and said, you know, hey, um, you, you can do it. His 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 belief that hey, you know, right now there's an extreme left side being taught. Uh, I would say he's saying, well, we need to teach an extreme right side. I mean, when you look at some of the curriculum content that PragerU has, it is just so unfactual. It is just actually really offensive. Um, and I can say, look, uh, Superintendent Horn, you know, he could try to thread the needle to say we're not pushing it down, you know, school school districts, you know, throats or, or but he is definitely legitimizing, um, you know, this this. I don't even want to call it a, 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 a university <laughs> yeah. a educational site or anything. This is just uh, straight flat right, uh, you know, really far right, you know, curriculum that's just uh, just offensive. Yeah, I mean, how much does this sort of give the the sanction of the state to put it? I mean, it's been online. Schools, in theory, could have used it before, but somehow it feels a little different to have it on the state education department website. Oh yeah, the state department of ed is giving its stamp of approval. Um, you know, so I was driving the other day, I believe I heard this on KJAZ, where there was a clip of actual PragerU material, and it was a guy doing a terrible Italian accent, pretending he's Christopher Columbus, mm-hmm. and he said, hey, it's, you know, slavery is bad, but being enslaved is, is better than being murdered or killed or something like that, yeah. and this was their actual content. So when you see the CEO of PragerU say, you know, uh, schools are being hijacked by the left, I could say as a parent of three kids who went through public schools in Arizona, I never saw any example of that. If anything, my super progressive, super smart 22-year-old daughter would say it was too, you know, too far right. But um, huh. that aside, um, there's never any um, – I've never seen any evidence that's hijacked by the right. Um, so I think what I'm going to do, Mark, I'm announcing here, 
I'm going to start Swifty you and <laughs> Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are going to serenade students with uh, schoolhouse rock jingles. So wow. I'm starting Swifty you. I'm going to launch it later this this afternoon. Okay. I wanted to break some news. Here I appreciate on that. Yeah, so. could, could we get yeah. you to do a solo of I'm just a bill right here? Oh, my God. Uh, conjunction, junction. What's my function? <laughs> what's your function? What's my favorite. Oh, my God. So what kind of impact, Reginald, do you think this will have? I and mean, we have obviously no idea how many schools, if any, or how many teachers, if any, will actually use these materials. But like, could it? What kind of impact do you think it might have on on public schools here? Well, look, I, I think that there will be some, you know, schools, whether they're whether they're charter or, or not, who will take this um, or you'll have parents, you know, who are part of these small groups. You know, you have groups like Purple for Parents and these other groups that have popped around uh, the valley that has really tried to push, you know, uh, the school system in a, in a very far right way. I think they'll they'll use that content. They'll push back on school districts whenever they see something that they believe is more progressive and and say, like, hey, you need to, you know, have this other alternative curriculum available. Um but I think this, you know, Tom Horn is doing what uh, folks thought Tom Horn would do. You know, if you look at his history with regards to um, his views on students of color, if you look at his views on with regards to, um, you know, curriculum, he has always been someone who hasn't been quite, in my opinion, like friendly to um, the history of this state. You know, um, and, you know, he, he often talks about Tucson and, and uh, ways in which, you know, Tucson has really led in many ways, making sure that, you know, students of color are understanding their true history. And I think that's that's OK. Um, but, the, you know, where, where he's trying to take the Department of Education is just something that I totally disagree with. And I think that uh, I, I could see I could see lawsuits coming, you know, headed to the Department of Education's way. Yeah. Just from a pragmatic standpoint, as a parent, um, this, you know, PragerU, whatever you want to call it, or if there's other uh, materials out there, as a parent, you care about what your child, how they're going to get into a good college or if they're going to go to a trade school, mm-hmm. you know, what the curriculum of the school is. Is it rigorous? Um, how are they going to do it with people skills and getting out when they get out into the real world? This is so inconsequential. It's uh, it's a waste of time and unnecessary because it's not going to, I believe, help one child, male, female, rich, poor, city, urban, uh, you know, rural, urban. It, it's not going to affect it one way. It's, I think it's a gross waste of time and resources. So speaking of resources in schools, uh, Governor Hobbs this week uh, unveiled her proposal to extend Proposition 123. This was the uh, voter-approved, barely voter-approved uh, measure yeah. from uh, several years back uh, that basically took more money out of the state land trust and gave it uh, to districts. Uh, the governor wants to to increase the amount uh, that is coming out of the state land trust, and she wants it to not just go to teachers, which is what legislative Republicans want, but for uh, other you know employees at schools, speech pathologists, librarians, folks like that, also school safety uh, issues like that. Reginald, we also saw heard from a Treasurer Kimberly Yee this week that says if you do that, you're going to decimate the the land trust. You know, it's important to know that right now, just kind of painting the, the context for, for for the listeners, right now in Arizona, a report came out that showed that there are 6,000 schools, classrooms right now that that do not have a certified teacher or have a teacher that's under certification. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, needed to happen, you know, back in 2016 when Prop 123 was passed, $300 million are being pumped into our schools, um, which are dollars that need to go to support our teachers and teacher pay raises. You know, the the reality is, you know, when it comes to the governor's plan, I think she hits it right. So she's looking to move the uh, distribution from 6.9% to 8.9% and say, hey, we need to not only fund teachers, but the support staff. Representative Judy Schreiber, she said, look, 
You know, uh, if you think about our education system, compare our teachers to an engine in a nice car, and then, you know, our support staff are like the tires. You can't have a great engine without the tires. Otherwise, you can't, you can't actually move. Republicans are saying, hey, let's just pay teachers, support staff. We don't want to worry about them. The reality is, is we want to get our school districts and our school system to a place where we can compete. We have to make sure that we're not only supporting support staff, we're supporting teachers in the classroom, and we're making sure that they have the resources that they need. Um, with regards to, you know, um, you know uh, uh, Treasurer Yi, look, when you look at some of the distributions that have been made, when you look at the revenues that the state land trusts make, I, yeah, could there be an argument that 8.9 is too high? Well, we need to see more data on that, um, uh, you know, but I, we want to make sure that we're getting the resources and deploying the resources out directly to our teachers and support staff because they need it. Treasurer Yee also said for the record that 6.9 isn't her favorite number yeah. either. She thinks that could be a problem as well, which is what legislative Republicans are proposing. But, Chip, the reality here is that, like, the governor isn't needed necessarily in this process, yeah. right? Like, the legislature can send something to the ballot for voters to, to decide on without going through the governor. Yeah. Yeah, there'll be uh, a lot of give and take on this. And I really do think there's um, – this is one area where there could be compromise for the good of the state – um, I think Governor Ducey and his team deserve a lot of credit for building a bipartisan coalition. I think it was 2016 to get Prop 123 yeah. across the finish line. It was very close, as you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would hope Governor Hobbs and the legislative leaders get together, find a number that they can all agree on, get it to the ballot so there's no delay because this does, I believe, expire mid-2025. Um, so I think, you know, maybe Governor Hobbs could take a, a page out of the Governor Ducey's playbook and build a bipartisan coalition, which is tougher these days because things are much more divisive at the Capitol. I get it. It's yeah. a big challenge. But I do think this is an area that everyone can come to the table. Everyone can take a win. You know, everyone wants credit in politics. But they could say, hey, we're doing this for the kids, the students, for the support staff. I really do think this is an area where compromise can win out at the end of the day. So when you talk about compromise, we also saw this week a proposal from uh, legislative Republicans on a number of housing bills. And some of these, to be fair, have have a good amount of bipartisan support. Is this an area, Chip, this year where we could see bipartisan compromise to deal with the state's uh, housing and affordable housing crisis? Yeah, I do. Th- I do think so. I um uh, you know, there's a lot of different bills out there. I do think from the city's perspective, I don't uh, – their point of view is kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit because I know, full disclosure, we work with a couple mm-hmm. of cities including city of Mesa. Um, they want – you know, cities are all about housing, affordable housing, population size, but they want sustainable housing, sustainable cities. And a lot of these – some of these bills – don't have any, uh, you know, zero obligations for the developer to make sure there's access to schools, make sure there's a walkable, bikeable community. So, um, you know, and according to MAG, the Maricopa Association of Governments, there are over 100,000 housing units in Maricopa County right now that have been approved, permitted, but the developer, for whatever reason, has not um, built those houses. So I think we have to look at not just the short term, what's good for developers. I'm all pro-business and I'm a capitalist. We have to look at long term, what's best for cities. And I think cities themselves are better long-term planners than private developers. But I do think there's, there's there could be a happy medium here, and I hope there is. But everyone's cities, you know, private sector, Dems, Republicans have to come together and, and hammer out an agreement. Reginald, last year there was obviously a big effort to try to do something on housing, and it really kind of seems to have come down to opposition from cities. The League of Cities and Towns didn't like a lot of what they were doing, and some lawmakers also got on board with not not supporting this. 
Is there a, a compromise to be found here where everybody can at least be okay with it? Yeah, I, I think there is going to there has to be a compromise. I think there there is going to be a compromise. Um, you know, the one of the things that we have to make sure that we're doing is making sure that not only we're listening to cities, but we're also pushing cities as well. I mean, when you talk to you know builders, developers, community members, advocates, and and you know who are supporting you know affordable housing, they are saying you know look, we have people right now that need housing today, of course, sustainable housing, and we want to make sure that we're able to get it done. And but the the pipeline that it's taking to actually get these houses built, the permanent prices, it, it it is a very very long process. So this is where we have to have a balance where you know cities are you know not only protect, protecting the long term um, plans that they're looking to do with growth, but also recognizing there are current problems today. Um, that people are facing today with regards to housing. And we have to make sure that we're creating the conditions that people want to still come here and they want to still build and they want to make sure that the development can actually happen. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think cities would, you know, if they were being honest with themselves, cities and towns would say, we have to cut down the bureaucracy. We have to get this permitting process faster. Um, But I I think if you did a, 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 you know, a a stock of every city and what they have on the books right now. Mm -hmm. So for in Mesa, for example, over the last two years, they've approved 6,400 housing units, multi and uh, single family units. So I think there's a lot out there, but for whatever reason, there's a um, an obstacle that doesn't get from the permitting process to getting built is a long lag time. We all know that, you know, these rise in housing costs are, you know, for, for a parent of two kids, re- recent college grads, it's real. And we all have to work on getting it better, make it more affordable for everyone, no matter where you're on the, on the uh, economic spectrum. Sure. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Chips Katari, Reginald Boulding, thanks to you guys both for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.